musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And my guess is that if you're listening to this podcast, uh, at least within a few days of when I post it, well, then you're not going to be attending Burning Man this year because, well, it's already begun. <laughs> All of the really cool people are already there, but, of course, those uh, one percenters who believe themselves to be more important than you and me, well, they will arrive in their private planes on Friday when they'll be escorted by their bodyguards to the posh theme camps that hundreds of immigrant workers have built for their solitude and pleasure. Can you tell that I'm uh, no fan of the billionaire theme camps that have become the latest rage at the festival? I can remember back to uh, the year 2002 when we heard that there was a uh, theme camp that had guards at the entrance, only allowing a few select people to enter their camp. Well, at the time, we were uh, just horrified at this lack of understanding about what Burning Man was all about, and uh, <laughs> so we staged a raid on their camp and overran them. But uh, that was then, and this is now. And uh, since I haven't been back to the burn since uh, 2007, I don't have any uh, first-hand knowledge about how far the Burning Man organization has gone to accommodate these wealthy sightseers, but uh, reports keep trickling in. I remember Bruce Damer telling me that last year he and Daniel Pinchbeck were invited by one of the billionaire camps to give a talk together. And Bruce told me that while he and Daniel were sitting on the stage and looking at this long row of million-dollar motorhomes uh, all lined up in a wall to keep riffraff like them out, <laughs> at least until it was their turn to entertain the wealthy moguls there, and uh, the two of them began to question the direction that the festival had taken. At the time, it seemed to them that the festival had begun to morph into an event attended by rich people who took no part in the uh, everybody-participates vibe and that hired poor people to do the heavy lifting for them, and uh, also there were a significant number of drunken teenagers running around. Now, not only did Bruce and Daniel decide to not attend this year, as you probably know already, Daniel Pinchbeck sent out a long and detailed email account of why he would not be attending. It's a long email, and I'll link to it in the program notes, but uh, here are a few key thoughts from this uh, missive, and I quote, Wealthy camps will drop hundreds of thousands on a vehicle and then parade it around with a velvet rope vibe. Increasingly, the culture of Burning Man feels like an offshoot of the same mindless, self-interested, nihilistic worldview and neoliberal ec economics that are rapidly annihilating our shared life world. I remember a few years back, I stayed near a camp that had been built for the founder of Cirque du Soleil, Guy Delibra and his friends. The camp was empty throughout the week. There were many beautiful gypsy caravan-style tents set up, awaiting the weekend visitors from Europe and Ibiza. There were also a few Mexican workers who labored over the course of the week, building shade structures and decorating the art cars. Nobody had offered these workers a place to stay in one of the carefully shaded luxury tents, so they had pitched their small nylon tent directly in the hot sun. That image seems to sum up where Burning Man has drifted inexorably. End of quote. So, uh, how's that for a downer way of beginning a podcast? For what it's worth, uh, I'm well aware of my own failings when things change in a direction that I don't agree with. For example, uh, during my four years as an undergraduate student at the University of Notre Dame, well, during that time it was an all-boys school. But in the 1970s, they had to change their policy and admit women undergraduates as well, or else they would lose all of their government grant money. Obviously, money is more important to Notre Dame than is tradition. Being a traditionalist at heart myself, however, I quit cheering for old Notre Dame and I quit donating to their alumni fund as well. Obviously, I'm just a cranky old man who holds a grudge for a long time. <laughs> so uh, please take what I'm saying about Burning Man with that in mind. Just because I no longer have a desire to attend the event myself, it doesn't mean that you should follow my lead. I was uh, lucky to get there when it was still relatively small, and, uh, well, it was a transformative experience for me. In fact, the 2002 burn was when I changed my name from Larry to Lorenzo. 
So I owe a lot to Burning Man, and I'm quite proud of the fact that the Palenque Norte Lectures, which my wife and I launched in 2003, are still taking place. Due, I should add, to the heroic work of quite a few people, including the new cornerstone person, Christopher Pezza. Not many people can appreciate all of the work that Pez puts into these lectures each year, and as a result of Pez and several dozen of his close friends, the Planque Norte lectures continue to provide a source of intellectual fun on the playa each year. And I hope that they keep going for as long as Burning Man continues. You see, while the festival has obviously had to change as it grew from the 20,000 or so when we first began the lecture series to over 70,000 people today, there are still little pockets of the original Burning Man vibe. So, for those fine souls who find their way to 915 and E this year, and uh, they stop by Camp Soft Landing, well, they are going to experience what I now guess we have to call the original, or the authentic, or maybe even the antique <laughs> version of the wonderful Burning Man vibe that has changed so many lives. Just as uh, Notre Dame has continued on with Women But Without Me... I'm sure that the Burning Man Festival will do just fine without me physically on the playa. However, at this very moment, my heart lies in Camp Soft Landing, and I'm very much looking forward to being able to listen to the Planque Norte lectures that are being held this year. I know that our wonderful sound engineer, Tom Riddell, couldn't make it this year, so I'm hoping that there still will be someone there to make recordings of the talks for us. I don't have the complete list of this year's speakers, but I do know that Annie Oak, John Gilmore, Maid Marion, and Alicia Danforth will be speaking again, as will Grover Norquist, if you can imagine that. Now, the talks won't be given in one of the billionaire's air-conditioned tents, but they will be given from the hearts of some people who are the real burners out on the playa right now. So, uh, <laughs> after that seriously bad introduction and downer talk about a great festival, <laughs> let's return to Burning Man one year and three days ago when Rick Doblin, the founder and CEO of MAPS, gave a talk that is introduced by the one and only Pez. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Palenque Norte. And... Um, I'm really happy to introduce our next speaker, a man who really needs no introduction, the president of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, Mr. Rick Doblin. Well, I, I found that in, in the past when I've given talks that um, rather than waiting for the end for um, questions, which we'll also do, but if any of you have questions during the talk and something's on your mind, I'd like to encourage you to ask at that time. So just raise your hand, and we'll um, get microphones to you. And I'm not really worried that that might take me off my track or, or anything like that. I think it's better when questions come up to um, give you a chance to ask them. John? <laughs> my most important point is that we're at this incredible moment in our culture that has taken us around 40, 45 years since the crackdown in the 60s and early 70s, and that now, if we're all careful and approach the, this transition in a responsible way, that we have a major opportunity to integrate psychedelics into our culture and also worldwide. Now, let me say a few things about what I mean about being careful. Um, and um, I was a day late to coming into Burning Man. And so I, um, so I ended up trying to fly here on, on Monday. And as you know, the rains and the airport was closed. And so I f flew in on Tuesday. And as I was flying in, I was thinking a lot about Richard Rockefeller, who has been so transformative, so utterly important to what we've been able to do, particularly with the military and how he had a tragic accident in the airplane also. And so when I talk about being careful, what I mean is that all of us, we don't really know how much longer we're going to have. And so we have to be very um, thoughtful about 
training the next generation and about passing on what we know so that what we're trying to do is something that none of us can do on our own. It's all about teamwork. And it's like passing the baton from generation to generation. So I think we have to be careful not to um, sort of centralize uh, in, in any particular individuals and think how can we make this transition something that is embraced by the whole culture and embraced by um, the next generation. And one of the things that I feel is really driving the resistance to what we're doing is the worry of parents about their children, that they will um, come to events like Burning Man, that they will go to electronic dance music festivals, that they will take psychedelics, and that they will have a tragic outcome, either from bad drugs or from pure MDMA or from LSD, where one way or another, physically or psychologically, they get in over their heads and they're wounded for certain periods of time. And that's a real outcome that's possible. And so I think what we're seeing here at this particular village with the tea house and what we're trying to do um, at Faux Mirage across the way with the Zendo project is show that even in the face of uh, a drug war that has at its core a harm maximization policy, trying to frighten people away from doing drugs, which as we know doesn't really work, and yet there's also a criminalization of harm reduction methods. So a lot of festival organizers are reluctant to get involved and to be open about the kind of services that as a culture we would actually need in a post-prohibition world or in the transition to a post-prohibition world. So I think the, the work that's being done at the Tea House um, and the work that we're trying to do at Zendo is paving the way for this transition because if we are able to medicalize psychedelics, which I believe that we will be able to do, then people's attitudes are going to change. The drug education that's offered to people is going to have to end up taking into account that these are substances and more importantly that the range of consciousness, the full range of consciousness that we are capable of as human beings, that that has to be something that's honored and taken into account and somehow or other taught to children about all of our potentials. And among those uh, catalysts are psychedelics. And psychedelics produce uh, human experiences that we can access in other ways. So when we take a psychedelic drug and material emerges from our unconscious or um, any any kind of content. It's not a psychedelic experience. It's a human experience that psychedelics have catalyzed. And these experiences can be catalyzed by many other techniques, by meditation, by fasting, by going through, uh, like the Indians with the um, um, sun dance, through pain, or through uh, sex, or through nature, that, that these are all uh, various catalysts for basic human experiences. And right now, as a culture, we're kind of um, halfway suppressing and halfway kind of acknowledging that there's a lot of value here. So the work that I see that the Tea House is doing and that we're trying to do with the Zendo, in a sense, it's defensive work to try to reduce the number of uh, casualties that come from people experimenting, but it's also to provide... Uh, therapeutic supports so to recognize that a lot of times cir circumstances um, turn into difficulties. And yet, if you can work through them, people can end up learning more. Yeah. Um, do we need... Could you say that... Um, well, I'll, I'll say... Okay, so the question was, um, could I explain briefly what the work is at the Tea House and what the work is at um, the Zendo? Any... Would you want to... Um, is she here? John, do you want to... Yeah. Okay. Hello? Hi. So, uh, as Rick said, we're the Full Circle Tea House next door. We're the sister project to the Zendo, which is on the other side of the city. And um, we provide a quiet place for people to rest and rehydrate 
and be supported by members of our community. And we've been very busy today because it's been hot and people have come in to get out of the sun and uh, fill up their water bottles. We have a public water supply. We give away water as well as tea. And um, it's a community art project that allows people to be in service to each other and to support people who need uh, direct care to be integrated into their own experiences and to uh, have compassionate people sit with them if they wish to support them through an experience. But most important, it's a place where people can rest and hydrate and we have a, a quiet space where they can also sleep. And uh, we have uh, a shuttle service that allows us to take people to the Zendo if they need more one-on-one -on -one care. The Full Circle Tea House has been here for four years, and it's served by a really beautiful community of volunteers. And uh, we serve great tea. So we invite you to come and drink tea with us. Thank you. And so the, the, and the, the Zendo is um, for people that are struggling with psychedelic experiences that have turned difficult and would like support. And so we have um, 140 volunteers, of which we were able to, um, more than we needed, actually. And so we selected 100 volunteers. We have 24-hour care uh, from now till Monday morning. And... We have a medical, our own medical staff. We have our own um, psychologists, psychiatrists, and um, people with expertise of various sorts. Um, in the past, we've, we've, and currently, we also use it in a way as training for future psychedelic psychotherapists because people are um, coming in with all sorts of uh, experiences and, uh, and they need support. So we're able to offer people, uh, they could stay... 12 hours, 2 hours, 24 hours. We have uh, food and water. We have a terrific team of people. And unfortunately, I would say, because of the drug war, um, there's a, um, it's a little bit difficult to do this kind of work in the United States. So we, we haven't been quite as able to let everybody know, you know through formal channels what we're doing. But we've also done work in, um, at the Boom Festival in Portugal, um, at Africa Burn, at uh, Envision in Costa Rica, uh, Bicycle Day in San Francisco, and other places. So the, the world's example, the best example of psychedelic harm reduction is at Boom because drugs are decriminalized in Portugal. And so the, the festival organizers, there was 40,000 people this year, the first week in August around the full moon. So they do thin layer chromatography on site where they're testing all the drugs that are being sold so everybody knows what they're doing. And they, the, or, the festival organizers create a, an area that's right on the main drag so everybody knows where it is. It's right out in the open, and they pay for the whole staff to do that. And so we've been working with them since around uh, 2004, and we've been doing some work here at Burning Man since 2003. And in um, 2006, it was our um, 20th anniversary of MAPS, and there's a fellow, Vanya Palmers, who is one of the leaders of the Zen community in Switzerland. And what we're seeing in this moment of opportunity that I talked before that we have, there's also been a, um, a coming together of people who have been involved in religious traditions and psychedelics. So that there was, you could say, so much interest in psychedelics in the 60s, and many people were inspired. But then with the crackdown came and the research ended, people have gone to look for non-drug alternatives. And there's been this little split that various people in different religious traditions have talked about how, you know, you get the message, answer the phone, then hang up, and now we're going to try to integrate with all these other ways, which are really important. But there's this coming back together. So the Zendo was uh, designed by um, a world-famous uh, architect who designed Zendos. It's out of cardboard. Um, and the original intention was a combination of uh, Zen meditation, MDMA, and dance as a way to try to um, reach spiritual experiences. And so the mind and the body and the spirit. 
Um, and then it was meant to be for one year, and instead of burning it up because the structure was so elegant, we've kept it throughout these years. And sadly, it was destroyed by the rain. The roof was destroyed by the rain, so now we have shade covers over it. But the, the purpose of it really is to say we can take care of each other and that we don't need prohibition and we don't need tranquilization. We need to recognize that when people stumble into um, experiences that are a little bit more than they can handle, that there's support and that they can work through it and then come out and join the Burning Man, that they don't need to leave, they don't need... And so I think that that's what our intention is. And we're working little by little. We were really inspired by Annie and John who created the tea house in their village. And then we recognized that if we could do it out of our village as a service, that then it doesn't place the Burning Man organization at risk. Because right now the, the laws do... Um, try to threaten festival organizers, that if you provide an opportunity for people to do drugs, you can be prosecuted, your event can be shut down, your assets can be seized. So we're, we're trying to find a way to provide the services that need to be provided. Um, yes? I tried to ask you this question, but I want to try again. Um, as I understand, mainly Zender works with the bad trips, right? Difficulties. Okay, I found myself. I did shift yesterday, this night, and I did uh, cosmic care in Boom. I found myself in a paradoxic state. So I came, nobody was there, and some leaders of shift said, "People will come," and I've been expecting people will come. So I found myself that I am expecting people had bad trips. You know that I felt good that I'm here. So I was thinking in a way that my wish would be, my deep desire would be to work with the people who, was, who will come for transformative experience, not just harm reduction. So what do I think? Can it be possible, at least somehow, to move the concentration of this project or to create another project for helping people with transformative experience? Um, well, that's a terrific question. So the, the idea is that, uh, you know, the Burning Man, you know, is an opportunity for all sorts of experiences with all sorts of energies. And so, you know, can we at one point or another create an opportunity for people who say, I want to have a transformative experience, and then they'll come and they'll be served by people who are able to do that. Um, I think that that is something more for the future, um, I mean, right now, as many of you probably know, there are police at Burning Man. There, there is a lot of concern about um, following the laws. Um, and so doing these kind of things in this open way is part of the social transformation that we're working towards. And so I, I think that that's more to the future. Um, and I think the idea of harm reduction is something that politically we can um, implement right now in our own villages, but even the Burning Man organization isn't quite comfortable, and other festival organizers in the U.S. are still not quite comfortable with doing that um, in a formal way, even to help people with difficult experiences. But isn't it true that the, when that's in the future, the future is about 2022, because by then we will have permission from the federal government for therapists to use MDMA and maybe also psilocybin with their patients. And so if therapists come and work in the Zendo, people could come and deliberately have a transformative experience with them by 2022 or so with your support. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to push the boundaries as rapidly as we can, but also we are trying to work with um, with the system as it is and to help them relax the restrictions in a gradual way. And, and I'll get to this a little bit more afterwards, the work that we're doing with the military, because I think that's one of the most important ways that the culture is changing. You mentioned that you think the path forward to this sort of reduction in um, criminalization of psychedelics and other drugs is through the medicalization of it. 
Could you speak a little bit more about how you see that unfolding and maybe also speak about how Portugal came to their current situation? Okay. Well, the, the easier question is just to, to talk about Portugal. So Portugal recognized that um, going after people for drug use would take people who had drug problems and make them reluctant to seek help because then they could be penalized for what they were doing. And we see that in the United States a lot of times, and that's part of the, some of the tragedies that happen at festivals where people are um, taking MDMA or other drugs, they're having a difficult time, and they're scared to ask for help because what they're worried about is also getting arrested. So there are some good Samaritan laws, but Portugal recognized about 10 years ago that they would decriminalize all drugs, heroin, cocaine, MDMA, all the drugs. And because of that, they've actually seen a reduction in drug problems. So the Portugal experiment has been an incredible success. And other countries are starting to look around at it. But I think we've got in the U.S., the U.S. has um, one of the most successful exports of the United States is the drug war. And <laughs> that's you know being challenged more and more around the world. But, but I think um, for us to try to change from the inside out is will have international replication, uh, implications. But Portugal is one of the ones that went first. So now the question is about how does medicalization... So I'd say that, um, and th this is kind of an important point, that, that we're not trying to say that the medicalization is the, um, the most, necessarily the most important work. Um, most people, I think, use psychedelics who do not have a diagnosable illness. So when we talk about medicalization, we're talking about patients who have a very specific um, illness. And, you know, the FDA, we've recently talked to them about um, couples therapy because MDMA is fantastic for couples, for relationships. But having a challenging relationship is not a disease. So there's no way we can really move couples therapy through the FDA. So I think when we talk about um, the way most people are um, using psychedelics, it's for personal growth and it's for a hunger for often for deeper spiritual experiences. And so I think the, the medicalization is very important in and of itself because there is a lot of people who are suffering who do have diagnosable illnesses and the current available techniques are not um, working for all of them. And we'll hear from Rachel Hope um, right after I'm done talking about her experience suffering from PTSD, going through all sorts of other treatments, and then finding relief in the MDMA study. So I think for me, when I first came to this work when I was 18 in 1972 and realized that... Um, that I wanted to devote my life to um, both getting psychedelic therapy <laughs> because I needed it and becoming a psychedelic therapist and helping the culture integrate psychedelics. It was because of this vision that, um, that I had been grown up sort of traumatized by the Holocaust. Um, I was born in 53. I have relatives, distant relatives killed. And just the horror of how people could dehumanize others. And then in my childhood was the arms race and the Cuban Missile Crisis and the whole idea that the world was at risk from nuclear annihilation and how could we deal with that. Um, I studied Russian in high school and my parents sent me to Russia uh, after my junior year of high school and you know it sounds very corny but um, I went for a walk on the beach with a Russian girl <laughs> and uh, we had a great conversation and she was my age and I was like, why should I hate her? Why is she, you know, seen as the enemy? Why am I seen as her enemy? And I recognize that we have these political systems that sit on top of the billions of people of the world, and they have their conflicts, but basically we're all the same. And if we can um, understand that, and then I had the whole question about Vietnam, and I was in the last year of the lottery and so I ended up deciding to, um, you know, become a draft resistor. So I was kind of identified um, myself as a criminal, as a counterculture criminal, and eventually a counterculture criminal drug user. And so um, what I felt at the time was that if we can experience our connection with each other 
and our connection with the planet. And not just think it, because there's a difference. Rita Marley um, has an album, Who Feels It Knows It. And I think that's really true, that, that it has to move deeper from an intellectual understanding into this really perceived reality of how we're all connected. And then if people know that, that we're connected to each other and connected to the environment, that it'll be harder to dehumanize other people. It'll be harder to be racist. It'll be harder to be sexist or any number of different ways that we separate ourselves from others. And so if we could find techniques that would help people have these experiences of connection, that that would have a ripple effect into all the different social issues that we're dealing with. And so it seemed to me that part of the reaction against psychedelics was because of this blossoming understanding that many people were having in the 60s with their psychedelic mystical experiences that that we were all connected. And, and a lot of the people who were involved in struggling against the Vietnam War were struggling, were motivated um, by their LSD experiences. So it became clear to me that this, the political implications of the mystical experience is the main thing that drives me. Now, on the other hand, trying to talk about how we can move through the current system of prohibition um, religious freedom requires religion. And so that's the, you know, in a way, the bad part of that. <laughs> that it's a group experience, it tr- comes with certain traditions. And what I think we really need is individuals having the right to explore their own spirituality through whatever techniques that they w- use, including psychedelics. And of course, we can work together with groups, with religions, with various institutions. But the heart of what we're trying to do is this personal individual spirituality. So I think the work of religious freedom, trying to implement that on an individual basis, is really the heart of where we'd like to go beyond medicalization. But that's so close to legalization because it's individual use. So right now in the United States, we have the Native American church. 500,000 people have the right to use peyote. But the federal government has decided that this is a religion that's limited to people of a certain race. It's the only religion that has a racial component, and you have to have 25% Indian blood from a federal perspective in order to be a member of the Native American church. Now, the Native American church people don't think that way, and a lot of states don't think that way. But that's just an illustration of how working on religious freedom is going to be a challenge, and I think it, it's it's important for us to work on all these different areas. And we've recently had, um, not not all that recently, actually, about eight years ago or so, the Supreme Court case about the Unyao de Vegetal, the ayahuasca church, that was um, unanimous vote of the U.S. Supreme Court saying that they could practice their religion. But there are not that many people who are members of the Unyao de Vegetal, and I was. Um, participating in a UDV ceremony and they were wondering if I wanted to be um, a member in order to continue coming. And I had found some very valuable experiences from my my ayahuasca experiences, but I was asking about their mythology and and they were like, this is really not mythology. This is really the way it was. (laughs) So I'm saying, you can't really believe this literally. And so I felt like I, I couldn't become a member of, of the UDV. King Solomon you know, went to Brazil and told the people to uh, unite the vine and the leaves and then he went back to Jerusalem. And so, you know, and then the, the Santo Daime has won a Ninth Circuit case, but not all the way up. So I think that working through religious freedom is really important. But the medicalization in our culture, we are so inundated with drugs for this and drugs for that. And the the best example I could say is let's talk about medical marijuana. So the first medical marijuana initiatives in California and Arizona were in 1996. All right. So now we're 18 years later, and we have two marijuana states, Colorado and uh, the state of Washington, that have legalization. We have 23 medical marijuana states. 
And some of the um, exit polling has found that um, one of the most important ways to predict whether somebody is in favor of the legalization of marijuana is whether they know a medical marijuana patient. So we're inundated by information, misinformation, fear-based, distorted information, and we don't know what to believe. And so if there's somebody that we know that has directly benefited from marijuana, that makes us wonder why is it supposedly so risky? Why is it that one puff and then before you know it, you're shooting heroin in an addict? So I think the example of medical marijuana, that in our particular culture, medicalization is a way to address the fears that people have about these drugs. It's a way through science to take opinion leaders who will say, yes, you know, this, this isn't one dose of MDMA and permanent brain damage with major functional consequences. So I think that the, the model that we see is um, medicalization and then and that's why I tried to say that I don't think that's the end goal. But I think that that's a very important route. While other people are working on religious freedom, and at the same time, other people are directly challenging the drug war and saying that prohibition is really um, not the way. So I think that, as John was saying, our current timelines for the medicalization of MDMA were in the stage of what's called phase two studies. And these are our small pilot studies where we test out our methodology. We try to find out um, who the patients are. Uh, like with Rachel, the first study we did was um, women survivors of childhood sexual abuse and adult rape and assault. And we had one or two veterans in there. Our current study in the U.S. is veterans, firefighters, and police officers. So what we've learned so far is that when it comes to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, for people that are stuck with trauma, it doesn't matter what the cause of the trauma was. It's The treatment works regardless of the cause. It works with war-related trauma and, and other kinds as well. We're also trying to refine the doses that we're using. So in some cases, we're using 75 milligrams, 100 milligrams, 125 milligrams, and we're trying to figure out how to do double-blind studies. And so there's a variety of things that we're doing in the phase two. We're going to be finishing phase two in about a year. And we will have about 90 subjects that we will have treated at a cost of somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 million to do all of this work. And then we're going to negotiate with FDA, and we're going to have about uh, probably another 400 people that we're going to have to treat in two large-scale phase three studies. And we're anticipating by 2021 we'll have the data to present to FDA. And then um, a part of my dissertation was trying to um, imagine um, how medical psychedelics should be regulated. And it's fundamentally different and fundamentally easier than medical marijuana because marijuana as a medicine is a take-home drug where you use it every day on your own, not under medical supervision. And psychedelics, it's psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. We're saying that the drug is only a part of the whole treatment, and you only get the drug under the supervision of therapists. So from the DEA's drug diversion perspective, it's super easy to control because it all takes place under supervision. So I think that from an FDA point of view and a DEA point of view, once we do present them the data that medicalization will follow. And the way the laws are written is that if the FDA decides that we have sufficiently proven safety and efficacy so that this could become a medicine, the DEA must reschedule. It's a question, is it Schedule 2, Schedule 3? Where does it actually go? So I think we have the regulatory pathway in front of us that will work. And at the same time, starting in 1992, there was meetings at the FDA where they had a, um advisory committee meetings, and they decided that they would open the door to psychedelic research. And so since 1992, we've had an open door at the FDA and at regulatory agencies around the world to put science before politics and do this research. The medical marijuana research is different, and it's blocked um, not by the FDA. We have FDA approval for a marijuana PTSD study that many of you, some of you may have heard about 
at uh, the University of Arizona in Phoenix, and the university recently just fired the doctor uh, to try to stop the study. In, it's, well, Phoenix. Well, University of Arizona is in Tucson and Phoenix, and so she's located in Phoenix. Yeah, there's, yeah, most, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the headquarters is in Tucson, but she's in Phoenix, and there are some facilities there. So it's, uh, the government monopolized the supply of marijuana, but we have our own independent sources of MDMA, of LSD. So I guess the, the, the basic answer to your question is that we are, in our pilot studies, we have demonstrated um, sufficient safety and also efficacy. And we work with chronic treatment-resistant PTSD, people who have failed on other um, treatments. And so I think it's a, it's a realistic thing. And so I think the medical route is the, the way. And once we have um, the medicalization, then it may be that these drugs are only going to be prescribed in certain kind of clinics with people that are trained in certain ways. So you can imagine... Um, we're actually working with the VA. One of the things that Richard and his cousin, Senator Jay Rockefeller, was able to do, which was so profound, was to persuade the Veterans Administration to let us move forward with some demonstration projects. And so the first demonstration project that we're working on, um, the VA heard about you know, MDMA as the hug drug, the love drug, and so they said that they have an approach for treating vets with PTSD that involves the couple, they call cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. So people's significant other who doesn't necessarily have PTSD is involved in the treatment. And so what we're now trying to work on is a protocol that I believe the FDA will accept where both members of the couple receive MDMA. So the primary outcome variable is PTSD in the designated patient, but we're also looking at uh, qualities of the relationship, of communication, of how both of them are doing. So this is a situation where we're expanding beyond the designated patient. A lot of the work that's being done is with end of life. We're starting a study in San Anselmo with MDMA, with people who are suffering from life-threatening illness and are scared of dying. And so you could imagine that the whole family is affected as well. So we're initially working with the patient. So I think medicalization and these psychedelic clinics starts with the patient expands to the families and then eventually can be sites of initiation where people who want spiritual experiences could come to these clinics and or personal growth, not necessarily spiritual. And then ideally we would evolve to a point where um, people would be able to buy these substances outside of medical context and use them in context that they choose. So that's the long-term plan. And as a model... Um, 1974 was the first hospice, the first place for people who were dying to sort of be treated um, in a more um, humane, less medicalized, and help them really to um, die with their families. And by 2004, 30 years later, there was 3,500 hospices. Most communities around America had a hospice. So I imagine that we're talking about a 20, 30-year rollout, and that's why I started talking about beginning about the next generations and really recognizing that to try to implement something into our society, it's going to take decades and decades and decades. But when you take a look at um, you know thousands of years of history, that's not really that long. So I think that having a long-term vision and having the patience to try to implement it, and trying to be careful not to go too fast in certain ways where you catalyze the backlash, but that expand at a, a sort of a gradual rate. And so that's why I think even though many of us know that we've benefited from these experiences, that it's helped loads of people with PTSD, we have to work within the systems to prove it in the ways that the FDA has developed, and that will take probably another $15, $18 million, and another, um, right now we're thinking about seven years. So, so that's the strategy. And then the last thing, and then I'll start open for more questions, is just the idea of a sustainable nonprofit. So what we're doing is constantly asking people for money because the pharmaceutical industry is not interested because these drugs, all the psychedelics are in the public domain. And the government is not yet funding this research because they're still a little bit too wedded to the drug war and they're not comfortable yet funding studies into the benefits of illegal drugs. And the major foundations 
so far have not felt ready to do this. We had a meeting with the Wellcome Trust in England, founded by a pharmaceutical company. Uh, it's the largest foundation in England. They have $20 billion dollars. And we wanted to talk to them about an MDMA study, and we were introduced by David Nutt, who was the drug policy advisor to the British government. And so during this meeting, we're talking about our work, and what they said was, this is a reputational risk. I said, this is a reputational opportunity, <laughs> and that you should see this as something that's neuroscience, that's really, it's studying love, it's studying bonding, it's studying healing. You should be involved. And in the end, they said no. So I think that it's come down to individuals and family foundations as the place where we're getting our support. But unlike um, a lot of other causes, we're trying to have a drug at the end of it. So what the FDA has this unusual policy to try to promote the medicalization of drugs that are off patent, and it's called data exclusivity. So what it means is that if you're the first to make a drug into a medicine, then you will get five years data exclusivity, which means nobody else can use your data to make it into a generic medicine. Somebody else could replicate the research and then get permission as well. You don't have a monopoly on that. And somebody else could study MDMA for something else entirely. But there's a good chance that we would have this window of time, five or six years, where MAPS would be the only organization that could actually sell MDMA for medical use. And so if we, and, and this the same is true for Hefter for their psilocybin work. And so without price gouging, because again, what we're talking about is psychotherapy. So most of the treatment is the cost of the psychotherapy. The drug cost isn't very much. So it, it's possible for us to medicalize MDMA and then through the data exclusivity earn enough money to fund additional research. Now, one of the most important things that uh, people have said against marijuana legalization is that we don't want big tobacco and big alcohol and you know American capitalism to market marijuana. Because before you know it, we're going to be marketing to children and we're going to have marketing to addicts and you know, that, that this kind of American capitalism behind drugs that have a risk potential, that that's a concern. So what we've looked at at MAPS is trying to not just find a new model to open up the door to legalizing psychedelics, but then how to market them. So what we're exploring is starting a benefit corporation because keeping the marketing of MDMA inside the nonprofit, we could lose the nonprofit status because of the income from a regular business. So what we're doing is exploring a benefit corporation where the goal is not to maximize the resources, maximize money. It's to maximize social benefit. So this will be wholly owned by the nonprofit, but that's the long-term vision of a sustainable nonprofit is medicalization and then through the sale of drugs as medicines earn more to fund additional research. So that, that's the big vision. Did you have a question, or I think? Uh, so I had a question about neurotoxicity with MDMA. Uh, I feel fairly safe consuming uh, DMT or LSD or psilocybin. Those have been around for 50 to hundreds of years, and there's much more data. There doesn't seem to be that much data on MDMA. Um, there's a couple, like, rat studies showing uh, neurotoxicity where they radiate serotonin, and then they show the serotonin is attaching to receptors less after MDMA, uh, admittedly higher doses. Um, what, what are your recommendations for people after they take MDMA? What cocktails like SSRIs, 5-HTP, antioxidants, and so on? Uh, what do you think about neurotoxicity? It's hard to predict a lot of these things. Okay. Um, well, the, the first thing that you said, I, I think that there's not that much information. Um, actually, that's not the case because once MDMA was criminalized and people, police are running around throwing people in cages for long periods of time, what we see is that there's a demonization of these drugs. So criminalization, prohibition, is usually followed by demonization of these drugs. And what that meant is that in practice, the National Institute on Drug Abuse and other agencies all over the world started investing in MDMA research. And so right now, if you go on Medline and you put in MDMA or ecstasy, there's over 4,600 papers on MDMA or ecstasy at a cost of somewhere in the neighborhood of $350 million dollars. 
So we know an enormous amount about MDMA neurotoxicity and a lot of other aspects of how MDMA works. And so what I don't know if, if, um, if any of you have seen it, but recently, there, just last week, there was an article about autism, and it was in the New York Times. And what it was saying is that it looks like autism is being caused largely by a failure of the brain to prune connections, that we have massive connections when we're young. And what happens during people's uh, teenage years and early adulthood is that there's a massive die-off of neural connections so that certain connections are strengthened, certain connections are weakened. So what's happened with this MDMA neurotoxicity literature is the idea is, first off, that if there's a change in the brain, it's automatically bad. Change equals damage. Now, more importantly, we've, there's enough studies that have shown that at the doses we use it in therapy, there's no noticeable neurotoxicity. But the key point is functional consequences. So it's a mystery. Our brains are still pretty much a mystery, even though we have massive PET scans, massive brain scan stuff. So when you start talking about changes in the brains, what we're really interested in is how are people affected? What are the functional consequences? And so what we've done is looked at um, neurocognitive t tests before and after MDMA therapy and have found no change. All right, so we in our studies and with the FDA, we do not give MDMA with SSRIs or anything else. But some studies in animals have shown that at high enough doses, MDMA will cause serotonin nerve terminal degeneration and that if you administer SSRIs up to six hours after the MDMA, that that's reduced or eliminated. So many people are using SSRIs after MDMA. I've been using MDMA since 1982. Um, I've used it over 100 times. Uh, and I've never, I've decided I just want to see what it's like. And so I, I don't use SSRIs. We don't use them in our research. I think the most important thing is to think about MDMA as a two-day experience where you rest and reflect the next day. And I think a lot of people who are exhausted the next day, they go back to work, they do various things. I think rest is um, and reflection. It's Because what we're talking about, again, it, on the one hand, you could say that the recreational use of drugs is about going out and having fun. It's about what you have in the moment. But the therapeutic use is not so much what happens during the experience, but what do you bring back? How does it change you? And so I think when we use that as our lens, that that second day of rest is where you really reflect and integrate. So we start our MDMA sessions at 10 in the morning. They go till 6 at night. We give usually 125 milligrams. After two hours, we give half the initial dose to prolong this plateau. Uh, we can give it between one and a half and uh, two and a half hours there's some um, flexibility for the therapist and the patient. If, they, if you give it at one and a half hours, you might get a little bit um, deeper experience. But we continue the, the, the male-female co-therapist team. That's the other key part of our model is a male-female co-therapist team to sort of model uh, collaboration, successful collaboration between the two sexes and also reflect in a way mother and father and people can project. And so the people are required to spend the night in the treatment center and then in the morning, after they're rested, then they have another multi-hour therapy session to integrate it. And then somebody else has to drive them home. And then we speak with them every day on the phone for a week, 5 to 15 minutes, just to check in. And then they come and have a non-drug psychotherapy session in purpose, person, usually about 90 minutes. And they do that every week for three to four weeks. And then they have their second MDMA experience. And then we repeat that again and then they have their third MDMA experience, and then two months and one year after, we do follow-ups. With the first study that Rachel was in, uh, because it took us so long to do the study, and we thought about implementing the follow-up uh, afterwards, we did it at an average of three and a half years later and found that the benefits on average sustained over time. So something has fundamentally changed in the way people relate to their trauma, and once you've changed that then it can stay permanent. On the other hand, some people relapsed, so life keeps happening. New traumas happen. It's not like we can ever uh, you know, treat somebody uh, for anything and then say they'll be better the rest of their lives. So we went to the FDA and we said we want to be able to give MDMA refresher sessions in a way to people that have relapsed, and the FDA said yes. 
And just to say how good our cooperation is with the FDA, we also went to the FDA and said, we need to train a lot more therapists. And there's not that many that have the underground credentials and the above-ground credentials. And we want to work with people that have the above-ground credentials, but we want to be able to give them MDMA as part of their training. And the FDA said, we can't just let you do that, but if you can devise an experiment that looks like science and is learning something, you know, then we can give you permission for that and we can let you limit who's in that study to therapists in your training program. So we've done that. So we have a study on the psychological effects of MDMA taken in a therapeutic setting by healthy volunteers. <laughs> and these healthy volunteers are, are therapists in training. And we've been able to take people from the VA, take people from all over the world to give them this experience. But with the relapse study, we found that if we can give people who have their PTSD symptoms, we had one person who was a vet who was in the study and who did really well and then a car crashed into his house, and people were killed right in front of him, and he kind of had a bit of a relapse. So what we've been able to show is that if we can give people one MDMA experience once they've sort of fallen back, that that, in most cases, is enough to get people back to where they're fully functioning. So it's eventually will be that, you know, different people. Some people, we had one vet in our study who had only one, he's a dropout, we can't even count his data. He had only one experiment, one 75 milligram dose, uh, Tony Macy is his name, and he decided under the influence of 75 milligrams of MDMA that he had been taking opiates for pain, that he really was not that much in pain, that he was using it as an escape, that he didn't want to take opiates anymore. And not only that, he didn't want to take MDMA anymore. <laughs> and he didn't feel like he had his PTSD anymore. And he said, I'm going to drop out of the study. So we said to him, you know, you can drop out, but would you participate in the long-term follow-up? And so by one year, when we did the long-term follow-up, he still didn't have PTSD. He wanted to get another MDMA session. <laughs> <laughs> to work on other issues, but we're only authorized to treat people with PTSD, and he didn't qualify. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So the, the effects of MDMA and LSD on our culture are undeniable. The first and second renaissance, technology, creativity. But my question for you is what I've discovered, the beauty of that has, hel that has helped me twice as much as any of those experiences I've had with either of those things it, that, it, that is the love of my life, second only to my daughter, that I can order and make myself. I want to ask you why, for the sake of God, is MAPS not using mescaline? <laughs> <laughs> it's the greatest thing. That's a, no, that's a great question. Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll say that when... Um, well, MDMA is actually chemically halfway between mescaline and methamphetamine. So it's the stimulant properties of methamphetamine without being uh, jittery, and it's the psychedelic properties of mescaline that has a lot of heartwarming properties without the visualization and the kind of ego dissolution. So when I was um, 18 years old at college, somebody came by uh, with half a pound of mescaline. And um, so I bought it all. <laughs> and, um, and so friends and I did a lot of mescaline. I would say mescaline is the most important psychedelic drug that is not being researched. Now, why is that? I mean, again, we have to focus on what we think is most likely to move through the system. So I think that the classic psychedelics, of which mescaline is one, represent a major challenge to psychiatrists and psychologists. So that because we need to be training psychologists and psychiatrists, because of the gentleness of MDMA, that's what we thought is that MDMA would be the one to move forward. So if we had unlimited resources, um, which we don't, um, it would be mescaline would be among the most important drugs to do some research. It's very grounded. And, of course, that's the active ingredient in peyote, and that's what people are using in the Native American church. Yeah. Yeah, mescaline is a phenomenal drug. <laughs> um, but again, for strategic reasons and for maximizing our limited resources. And then the other part is the PTSD. I mean, again, what we've felt is that in a culture that's terrified of these drugs, that's terrified of their own self, of our own inner selves, 
So a lot of the drug war is driven by people who are scared of themselves and scared of what's inside them. That we need to pick patient populations that the mainstream identifies with. And so PTSD, people that have been victimized and sexual abuse and rape and war, there, there's a lot of support for that. And so I think eventually what we're trying to do is to legitimize and legalize psychedelic psychotherapy. And MDMA is a great drug, but it's not the only drug. It's not, for many people, it's not even necessarily the best drug. What we would like to do is have it to the point where your, your doctor has this tool chest of the entire range of psychedelics. And most likely, I, psychedelic psychotherapy of the future could start with MDMA. It could move to mescaline. It could go to LSD. It could use ayahuasca, which is a whole other question. Can you take ayahuasca out of the religious tradition? But really, our goal is to legitimize psychedelic psychotherapy with the full range of psychedelics and the sequencing can be decided by the therapist and the patient. And I imagine that... Now, now one of the things about mescaline, just to say, is that most people don't have experience with mescaline because it's not that powerful. You need about 400, 500 milligrams. So underground chemists are looking for drugs that they can make in smaller quantities that are more doses. So most people have not had any experience with mescaline. One of the funny things at Boom was that they were, everybody had, there's this allure to mescaline. So there was all these mescaline that was being sold. Everybody had mescaline on this little blotter paper. <laughs> and if you know anything about mescaline, it couldn't possibly be. So, of course, it wasn't. But I think that that's another part of the reason is that, that people don't have experience with mescaline. And so part of what we're trying to do is to use drugs that are in the public consciousness and show that under certain circumstances, the benefits can vastly outweigh the risks. Now, I heard you guys say, I just want to say that we've hired somebody on our staff, Ilsa Jerome, a PhD. Her job has been to read all of the psychedelic literature on MDMA, all of these papers. And for the FDA, we've had to summarize all of this. So if you go to the MAPS website, maps.org, and you go on our research, and then you go to the MDMA page, it's called the Investigator's Brochure. So we've spent somewhere in the neighborhood of $200,000 to review all of the existing literature. So in a sense, we have captured $350 million worth of studies through $200,000. And we have um, created this investigator's brochure that you can go and you can learn, and you can learn all of what the current science is about MDMA. And we have a similar one for LSD, and we're going to be doing one for other drugs as well. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And I'll be sure to link to maps.org in the program notes for today's podcast. And if you're visiting that site for the first time, I suggest that you first hover over the resources link in the main menu. And there you will find access to a significant amount of scientific literature that deals with psychedelic substances. And at the bottom of the resources list is a link for students that is going to take you to all kinds of information that would most certainly have changed my own life had it been available when I was a student. Also, uh, you heard Rick just now talking about the amazing story of Rachel Hope. Well, if you've uh, been around in the salon for a while, you'll remember that I podcast Rachel's talk in podcast number 432 this past January. And also on that podcast is the inspiring 2014 Palenque Norte lecture by Katie Tomlinson, who is uh, one of the foremost student leaders in our community out here on the West Coast. And as you know, you can get to the program notes for today's podcast via psychedelicsalon.us, where you will also find a picture of the MAPS Zendo that Rick mentioned as having been hit hard by the freak 2014 rainstorm on the playa. Just as an aside, uh, when Rick mentioned Dr. David Nutt just now, I was reminded of a really excellent video by Russell Brand titled, From Addiction to Recovery. And in it, Brand uh, interviews Dr. Nutt, and this was the first time that I heard a professional of the caliber of Dr. Nutt say that approximately 10% of all humans have brains that are configured so as to essentially prevent them from using drugs in a recreational manner which is the situation that Russell Brand finds himself in. And uh, his video is something that I recommend everyone to see. Uh, even the most anti-drug warriors should come away with a new understanding about the war that they're involved in. 
And uh, since the main focus of Rick's talk today concerned the use of MDMA, or ecstasy as it was called on the street, I'll also put a link in today's program notes to the uh, 30-minute interview that I gave concerning the entry onto the streets of Dallas, Texas of that many-faceted substance. And uh, for what it's worth, although I haven't had a chance to uh, listen to this yet, the man who interviewed me in that video, Tom Huckabee, recently did an interview just for the salon with former High Times editor and elder extraordinaire Peter Gorman. And uh, you'll hear that next week here in the salon. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends. <laughs>